You may be surprised to learn that the cross did not become a central symbol of the church until the 4th century. Some say that it never should have become such an important symbol. They usually are reacting to a shame-based theology of the cross, which isn't what we preach and teach at Second Presbyterian Church. However, the cross is central to the story told by the Gospels. And so, this Lent, we will preach Christ and Him crucified, just as the Apostle Paul said we should do. We've titled our series, Lift High the Cross, borrowed from the famous hymn with the same title. We will look at what the cross reveals about us and about God. We will speak of sin. Yes, we will. But speak also of the grace and hope of the cross and how human dignity is encouraged and not destroyed. Give a listen. If you want to hear the prayers and music of the worship surrounding the sermon, find us on YouTube or online at sprez.org. Let's join our hearts again in prayer. Gracious God, as we turn to your word for us, may your spirit rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. And may the sacrament be for us a reminder of your claim and grace upon our lives. Amen. We turn now to our scripture. In the Gospel of Mark, reading from Mark 15, verses 1 through 15. This takes place on a Friday morning. Hear these words for the church today. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Pilate asked him, Are you king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. Then the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further reply, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the festival, he used to release a prisoner for them anyone for whom they asked. Now a man called Barabbas was in prison with the rebels who had committed murder during the insurrection. So the crowd came and began to ask Pilate to do for them according to this custom. Then he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that the chief priests had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release Barabbas, for them instead. Pilate spoke to them again. Then what do you wish me to do with the man you call the king of the Jews? They shouted back, crucify him. Pilate asked them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As you are aware, George is in balmy Israel this morning. I was able to travel there a number of years ago with a May term class in seminary. What struck me on my visit was the sheer volume of people from all over the world who flocked there to see for themselves religious sites and relics. 
What was incredible to notice were all the nationalities and languages represented. To see stone thresholds and walkways worn down by simple foot traffic across millennia. But one of the strangest experiences to me was visiting Calvary, or Golgotha, the place of the skull. The rise of rock on which Jesus and two other convicted criminals were crucified. Today, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre sits on top of the site, and travelers like you and me wait in line with our fanny packs and bottles of Diet Coke to place a hand on the spot where Jesus' cross supposedly stood. It's a strange dichotomy. Tourists with backpacks and gilded rooms waiting for a turn to touch an ancient place of humiliation and execution. Accounts of Jesus' crucifixion are largely found in the Gospels themselves, but there are also non-biblical accounts of the story. Ancient historians from the era tell it as history, and they corroborate a few details from the New Testament, like first-century Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote in 93 CE, speaking of Jesus. He won over many Jews and many of the Greeks. He was the Christ. And when upon the accusation of the principal men among us, Pilate had condemned him to a cross, those who had first come to love him did not cease. He appeared to them, spending a third day restored to life, for the prophets of God had foretold these things and thousand other marvels about him. And the tribe of Christians, so called after him, has still to this day not disappeared. And another Roman historian of the time, Cornelius Tacitus was disdainful toward Christians, but he wrote in the Annals of Imperial Rome, Christus, the founder of the followers, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judea in the reign of Tiberius. For these two men, like everyone else at first, Jesus' death held no religious meaning. For Jesus' first followers, the cross was a state instrument of torture and death. Imagine if the central symbol of our faith nowadays were not a cross, but an electric chair, or a lethal injection syringe, or a lynching tree. Historians tell us that it was not uncommon for the road to Jerusalem to be lined with crosses in Jesus' day, each of them bearing a body. People had no choice but to pass by those grim instruments of capital punishment on a regular basis. Imagine what life was like for these people, living under the shadow of the cross, under the constant threat of terror. That is, of course, exactly what they were meant to do, to terrorize and intimidate. They were, as Debbie Thomas describes it, the Roman Empire's illustrated sermons. And the message of those sermons was crystal clear. You can have your religion, you can worship whatever you want, but don't forget, even for a minute, who really holds sway over life. Go to your temple if it suits you. Call on your God if it makes you feel good, but never mess with the power structures that actually control this world. Don't even think about resisting. If you do, we'll hang you up on a cross, too. 
The disciples were counting on Jesus to change all that. Their great hope was that Jesus would lead them in the military revolution and overthrow the oppressive empire. He was supposed to pull down the crosses, not die on one of them. Since that Friday we now call good, Christians have been trying to make sense of the cross. Faithful and doubtful people have been wrestling with what it means. That's what we're doing here, right? We're asking whether the theories and equations Christians have devised actually hold up when we compare them with what we know of a loving and generous and gracious God. Marcus Borg writes, If we ask the historical question, why was Jesus killed? The historical answer is because he was a social prophet and a movement initiator a passionate advocate of God's justice, and a radical critic of the dominating system who had attracted a following. If Jesus had been only a mystic, a healer, a wisdom teacher, he almost most certainly would not have been executed. In other words, Jesus' death was the consequence of what he was doing, but not his purpose. Jesus was a healer teacher, prophet, messiah, and he courageously kept doing what he was doing, even though he knew it could have fatal consequences. Now, whether we agree with Borg on this, the cross was an historical event. And yet, it isn't only an historical event. It isn't only about one moment in history. As Reinhold Niebuhr describes it, the cross symbolizes both an historic and a cosmic truth. Martin Luther made famous the phrase, crux probat omina, the cross proves everything. That line may sound like an overstatement or Christian triumphalism, but many great truths become obvious and even overwhelming in light of the cross. In the cross, Jesus takes away the sin of the world by exposing what is the real sin of the world, violence, prejudice, Hate, not our purity codes and denominational judgment. By refusing the pattern of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, Jesus instead says, return curses with blessings. And he commands us to do the same. As Richard Rohr explains, in the cross, Jesus isn't working some magic in the sky that saves the world from sin and death. But rather, Jesus is working magic in history that redefines its direction forever. Jesus is not changing his Father's mind about us. He is changing our mind about what is real and what is not. War goes on to share that when he was a boy, his family had one of those familiar statuettes of the three monkeys. His mother told him that it meant, See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, with each monkey covering the appropriate place on his head. And as a child, Roar thought that it was his job to try and be like that, to see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil, as a Christian. But indeed, this is not God's plan for overcoming evil. Jesus did not come to merely offer willpower and sustaining moral education. And Jesus Christ... God came with eyes wide open, ears wide open, and the conviction to speak out against evil. 
The cross is a trustworthy disclosure of the evil domination systems and the revelation of God's great love for us. Consider the image from Numbers 21 of Moses and the bronze serpent in the desert that become the symbol for doctors and healers the whole world over. God tells Moses to place a bronze serpent on a tall pole. And when anyone who has been bitten by a poisonous serpent looks at it, they will be healed. The very thing that was killing them became the very thing that would heal them. Think of the cross like those medicines that give you just enough of the disease so you can develop a resistance and be healed from it. The cross dramatically reveals the promise of ignorant killing to inoculate us against doing the same thing. The cross is not an image of divine transaction, but of human transformation, a transformation the world so desperately needs. The cross is clearly saying that evil is to be opposed, and yet in the same breath, it causes us to realize how overwhelming and pervasive evil is. When truly considered, the cross is revealing our own complicity and cooperation with evil. The mystery of the cross teaches us how to stand against hate without becoming hate, how to oppose evil without becoming evil. We're pulled in two directions, toward God's goodness, but also toward the evils that tempt us in the world. So we hang between our very lives a paradox, and the cross is holding the middle. The longer I practice my faith, the more I ponder this image of two directions, and the more I feel pulled in the direction of the cruciform, the cross-shaped, the cross-centered, which is to say I'm drawn to a God who suffers before he conquers, a bruised God who accompanies us as well as saves. I'm increasingly reliant on the painful mystery and paradox of the cross and the empty tomb. It is in dying that we live. It is in surrendering that we might triumph. It is in the shape of a lonely, jagged cross that we'll find salvation in God. In many ways, the cross holds our human history, all the hope, tragedy, love, and joy that shapes us. It reveals to us the horrors of injustice, but also shows us the deepest love the world has ever seen. To live a cruciform life is to be willing to encounter the world's pain. It means recognizing Christ crucified in every suffering person we meet. It means accepting that we will die, that God died. Jesus willingly took on the conviction of the regime. He didn't fight against Pontius Pilate. He didn't contradict the crowd when they called for Barabbas. He didn't scold his disciples when they fled. Instead, he took an instrument of torture and turned it into a vehicle of love and welcome for all people everywhere. Jesus loved, and he loved, and he loved, and he loved all the way to the cross all the way to the tomb. In the cross, we have hope. Despite our brokenness, despite our history, within our history, 
the cross of Jesus gives us hope. It shows us that love never ends. It shows us that love goes beyond death. It shows us the truth and glory of resurrection and the resurrection life we are called to live. Second Presbyterian, finding direction by following Jesus.